As we have considered the political options following the Gaza war, there has been so much of a focus on recognition of Palestine and the two-state solution that there has been a general drop of the relevance of the conversation about an idea which, until the 7th of October, I would say had been steadily gaining ground, which was the idea of establishing a binational state as the only just and sustainable solution, in which Israelis and Palestinians, and anyone else for that matter, would live with equal rights within the boundaries of an undivided state. And this has been one idea that has found tremendous traction among certain circles and been widely criticized by other circles as not feasible. The question is whether it's still in the discussion today. But I thought it would be of great interest to us all, and by your turnout tonight, you're proving this point, to revisit the question of the binational state. There are bound to be jokes made at some point in the evening about a typo that fit into our poster, which originally announced this to be the prospects for a bipolar state. <laughs> I promise that is one occasion on which Freud would have had a picnic. But we chose two people who have come to the question of the binational state from very different starting points. Both united in a common project of reassessing Israeli history, the new historians. Each has a very independent voice, quite different from the other. I would describe Ilan Pape's approach to the binational state as one very much shaped by his own internationalist worldview, in which he has been consistently anti-nationalism of any stripe in pursuit of a more humane and juster solution, not just for Israel-Palestine. So, I would say it is a lifelong conviction of the internationalist Ilan Pape. For Avi Shleim, I think it really is an evolution in his own political thinking that has followed the breakdown of the hopes of the Oslo Accords to try and resolve the differences between Israel and Palestine to a two-state solution. But he was in recent years very firmly of the view that the scope for two states was now finished by the settler movement and the infrastructure that has been laid to provide for their needs and security by an Israeli state that never really showed a commitment to a two-state solution to make that a reality. And so, by default, we are now in a situation of one state. I've given each of them 25 minutes to address you. I'm only going to let them know when they're about five minutes left. I'm going to keep my questions to a minimum because I know you're going to have so many of your own. All that remains is for me to ask you to give thunderously warm welcome to Avi Shleim and Ilan Pate. To prepare for this talk, I went down to the Natural History Museum to look at the dodo. <laughs> the dodo was discovered by European sailors towards the end of the 16th century in the island of Mauritius in the uh, Indian Ocean. The, the last 
confirmed sighting of the dodo was in 1662. Uh, since then, he has been extinct. Uh, so when I arrived to the case with the dodo, I saw two French schoolgirls taking notes. And I said to them, had you heard of the dodo before you came here? And they said, yes. And I said, what do you call him in French? And they said, the dodo. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew that the Oxford dodo has an internationally visible profile. But that's by the by. What is significant is that the dodo was a flightless bird. Even when he was alive, he couldn't fly, he couldn't <coughs> take off. And you must be wondering by now, what's the connection between the dodo and the theme of this seminar series, which is political options after the Gaza war? The, connect, the link, the connection is that some years ago, Mehdi Hassan recorded a debate in the Oxford Union mm -hmm. um, and um, for Al Jazeera. And he turned to me and he said, Professor Schley, uh, is the two-state solution still alive? And I said, no, uh, it's dead. It's as dead as a dodo. It's as dead as the Oxford dodo, whom I visit regularly in the Natural History Museum. So ever since then, in my eccentric mind, there's always been a link between the two-state solution and the state of the Oxford dodo. So that's why I went to the Natural History Museum, and I went to the glass cabinet, and I tried to talk to him, no answer. I, I pulled faces to make him laugh, no reaction. I tapped gently on the glass, still no response. I tapped louder and no uh, response whatsoever. So it is my solemn duty to announce that the two-state solution is as dead as the Oxford dodo. <laughs> and this is my starting point, that the two-state solution is not viable. It has become fashionable in recent years to say that the two-state solution is dead. I would argue that the two-state solution was never born. But I'd like to come back to that. Uh, first, um, I want to say a few words about the new history, because we have with us Ilan, who is the trailblazer, trailblazer of the new history. And um, lest you think there is no connection between the two, I suggest that there is a connection between the new history and the subject of our debate today. And that is the solution to the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians depends on the character, the nature of the two entities. And this is where the, the new history is relevant. In 1984, Ilan submitted a DPO thesis. He was a student at the Middle East Center. His two supervisors were Albert Rouhani and Roger Owen. He submitted a thesis um, 
on Britain and the Arab-Israeli conflict, 1948 to 1951. I was the external examiner because I was at Reading University at the time. This was a radical revisionist thesis which stood the conventional uh, wisdom on the Arab-Israeli conflict on its head. In particular, he questioned the Zionist claim that towards the end of the British mandate in Palestine, Britain armed and incited its Arab clients to invade Palestine upon expiry of the mandate in order to strangle the, um, the Jewish state at birth. Ilan using British records, Israeli records, primary Arabic sources, uh, concluded that there was a case against Britain as the uh, Palestine mandate approached its inglorious end. But it's not what the Zionists were saying, but on the contrary, that Britain accepted the inevitable emergence of a Jewish state, but Britain colluded with its ally, King Abdallah of Jordan, to abort the birth of a Palestinian uh, state. All the ideas of the new history were present in one form or another in that Field uh, thesis. Um, I have probably supervised or examined more than 50 PhD theses in my time. Uh, but this thesis had the most profound impact on my intellectual trajectory. Uh, it's what made me a new historian. In 1988, three books were published, one by Ilan, on, based on his thesis, one by Benny Morris, The Birth of a Palestinian Refugee Problem, and my own book, Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdallah, The Zionist Movement and the Partition of Palestine. Th there was a fourth book by Simcha Flapan called The Birth of Israel, Myth and Reality, and Simcha Flapan spent a year at Harvard, uh, and Professor Rogan was his research assistant. Um, be between us, we launched a frontal attack on all the myths that have come to surround the birth of Israel in the first Arab-Israeli war. The reaction in Israel was very hostile. Why were Israelis so angry with us? I think the answer is because the new history went to the core of Israel's perception of itself as a liberal, peace-loving country. Although we are lumped together as a new historians, politically we had very different positions. Benny Morris was a Zionist. Ilan was an anti-Zionist. Ilan regarded Israel as a colonial project which was not at any time uh, legitimate within any borders. And I was in the middle between the two of them. I thought that Israel within its pre-67 borders was legitimate, but the Zionist uh, colonial project beyond the Green Line was illegitimate. Uh, so I was an advocate of the two-state solution, and I was a cheerleader for the Oslo uh, Accord. And I may say that I um, received a lot of abuse my, for my views. Um, 
my wife and daughter regarded me, denounced me, as an apologist for the Israeli state. <laughs> but my views have changed over time, and I no longer make a distinction between Israel proper and the occupied territories. I see Israel as an aggressive settler colonial state, as a violent ethno-nationalist state that is becoming increasingly genocidal and, in close, uh, and closely tied to American imperialism. So after 40 years of research and reflection, I've ended up where Ilan Pape was in 1984. <laughs> uh, now, um, let me go back to the two-state solution. Uh, it's never been a realistic solution for two reasons. One is because Israel is addicted to occupation. You represent any mainstream of political opinion in Israel. I'm so sorry, but you'll have to go. Israel is addicted to occupation. After 1967, Israel chose occupation over peace. Could we have more volume on Can you speak out as much as possible? Just more volume on them. We all want to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Israel chose occupation over peace. And Israel used peace negotiations as a smokescreen to advance its colonial project. There was the so-called peace process, but the peace process was all process and no peace. It was a charade. It was worse than a charade because it gave Israel just the cover it needed to pursue the aggressive Zionist colonial project in the occupied territories. The platform of the Likud for the 1977 election stated that between the river and the sea there will be only Jewish sovereignty. The, in the Bar Ilan speech in 2009, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu said that he would accept um, a disarmed Palestinian state under all sorts of restrictions. It was the only time he, he mentioned the uh, possibility of a Palestinian state. But his life mission has been to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian <coughs> state. And the guidelines of his present government say only Jews, or Jews, sorry, Jews have an exclusive right to self-determination in the entire land of Israel. The other reason why uh, I argue that the two-state solution was never born was because America never seriously pushed Israel into this 
into uh, this kind of a settlement. <coughs> Two-state solution is a convenient um, formula for American leaders and other Western leaders, but it's vacuous. Um, America used to pose as the honest broker, but it's not an honest broker, it's a dishonest broker because of its partiality to Israel. It acts more uh, as Israel's lawyer than as an, an honest broker. America gives Israel military aid and diplomatic protection. America has used the veto in the Security Council 46 times to defeat resolutions that were not to Israel's liking. During the current war, America defeated one resolution at the Security Council, which is supported by 13 members with only Britain abstaining. So America alone defeated a ceasefire resolution, which we could have had. And now Algeria is about to present another resolution for a ceasefire, and America has already indicated it's likely <coughs> to um, veto it. Joe Biden has been in power for three and a half years, and we didn't hear a peep throughout of him about a two-state solution, or indeed about any solution. He was perfectly content with Israel continuing as a colonial overall. Um, Biden supplies is yeah, Israel with munitions and arms, and then he complains that Israel makes excessive use of these arms. His idea of a two-state solution is to impose the Palestinian Authority on Gaza and have some sort of a few Bantustans that would amount to, to a state in, in nothing but name. This is in the worst imperialist tradition of imposing on the local populations Western solution, imperial solutions that completely ignore their rights and aspirations. Uh, surely the people of Gaza and of the West Bank must be left to choose their own government when this ghastly war comes. And today there are only two alternatives for the day after. One is Bibi's alternative and um, Bibi's alternative for the, um, the aftermath of this war is that everything remains the same on the West Bank with Israel enjoying completely free hand and the Palestinian Authority, weak Palestinian, discredited Palestinian Authority continuing to act as the subcontractor for Israeli security. Permanent Israeli security control over Gaza, limited self-government by the people of Gaza, provided they are not hostile to Israel, though I doubt that by the end, that by the time Bibi is finished, there will be anyone in Gaza who is not hostile to Israel. And no return of the Palestinian Authority to Gaza, because that would be a unified uh, Palestinian leadership which would strengthen the, the, the call for a Palestinian statehood. And definitely a no, an absolute no, to any notion of Palestinian statehood. This is unacceptable. The other 
um, alternative is a binational state. <laughs> <laughs> and the title of this seminar is Is the binational state possible after the 7th of October? And the answer to this question is no, because of the opposition from Zionist settler colonialism backed by American imperialism. But a binational state is the only democratic solution to this conflict. I therefore advocate today one democratic state from the river to the sea with equal rights for all its citizens regardless of religion and ethnicity. And I'm not talking about what is politically possible. I'm talking about morality and international law. And on 99% of the issues in dispute between Israel and the Palestinians, international law is on the side of the Palestinians. Now, much work has been done on the one-state solution. Um, Ali Abunima, Rada Kami, uh, Ilan, uh, Jeff Halper in Israel, Jeff Halper, the director uh, of the Israeli, um, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, and he and Palestinians uh, have formed a group which is called um, the One Democratic State Campaign. Here in Britain, there is an affiliated group called the One Democratic State Initiative. For me, the key to any solution is equality, political equality for all people within this entity. The core of this solution for me uh, is not peace, but it's equality. The other essential requirement is that the state would be secular. In other words, that relig religious affiliation would not affect in any way, for better or worse, the rights of each individual. In other words, my one-state solution is the antithesis of the Zionist colonial project. And the impulse for change is not going to come from within Israel. Israel would have to be coerced into accepting this outcome. Now, it's clear that this noble vision will not be possible after, immediately after the guns fall silent in Gaza. Does it have any chance of realization in the longer term, at any point in the future? I don't know the answer to that, but I live in hope. My experience as an Arab Jew leads me to believe that antagonism between Muslims and Jews is not inevitable, is not inescapable, is not preordained. 
I grew up as a boy in Baghdad, and my for my family and me, Muslim-Jewish coexistence was not a remote dream. It was the everyday reality, and I would like to recreate that. And this experience has enabled me to think out of the box, to think about a better future for our region, for everybody. So I live in hope, and hope um, is one previous Israeli speak speaker in this seminar said, hope is a desire to achieve something, to achieve what you know is probably not achievable, but the struggle to achieve it is energizing. Thank you for listening. It's great uh, to be here and to see so many people. Thank you, Avi, for your kind uh, references. Um, it's reminded me that it was 40 years ago when we just started and now I understand why I decided to retire from teaching. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really a long time ago. Um, I would like in my uh, contribution to uh, distinguish between what I think is an unfolding reality, not just since the 7th of October, but actually through the, from the beginning of this century, and talk about this unfolding reality as a scholar, as, a, as an academic, not as a political activist or uh, as someone who, who is part of that uh, story, but really share with you certain observations about a certain process that I think is taking place and is very relevant to the topic, not only of this uh, uh, meeting, but of your series altogether. And uh, distinguish between that observation uh, and uh, share with you, as Avi did, some uh, uh, ideas about what I would have liked to unfold uh, in the future. So the difference between examining a reality, whether you like it or not, and talking about the reality you would have liked uh, uh, to, to unfold, I think is very important in these uh, discussions. And uh, the kind of reality that I think is unfolding is... is it's difficult to, to, to articulate because these are trends or indicators uh, of something bigger that is going to happen. Uh, but I think that they have matured to such an extent that I feel secure enough, certain enough, to uh, talk about, maybe even predict if you want, uh, uh, how they will fuse together into a very monumental, I think, a transformation in the reality in Israel of Palestine where it wouldn't matter that much whether we are for one state, two states, or three states. And um, uh, while my vision is not at all far from uh, Avi's vision, in fact I share every word, I would uh, articulate it probably in the same uh, way, Avi, I think it's important to look at the uh, trends that uh, or indicators uh, that in my mind are bringing a certain epoch, certain uh, period in the history of modern Palestine to an end, the Zionist history. I think we are 
witnessing very clear indication to the beginning of the end of the Zionist project. If you want, the end of Israel as we know it, the end of the Zionist project. Uh, and the events of the 7th of October only accelerated and accentuated these uh, uh, developments or trends that, as I mentioned, occurred, already started at the beginning uh, of um, the, this century, and maybe some of them even before the beginning of this century. Uh, the uh, analysis of such uh, an idea that an epoch or a certain period comes to an end, of course, raises also the question of what would replace the Zionist uh, project <coughs> in, in Palestine. Um, but I think it's, it's very important to convince people that this is not, and here may, I may differ from Abi, this is not about the wishful thinking and talking about a certain vision that we would have liked to happen, uh, but we don't think will happen in our lifetime and so on. But rather, as an historian, I believe that actually these disintegrations and collapses of ideological regimes usually happen faster than we think. It's like uh, a wall that has a cra cracks in it, and you warn people that the cracks are quite wide, but when the cracks would be wide enough, the wall would suddenly collapse. Look at the way people try to understand when and if, if and when, the Soviet Union would come to an end, if and when would the Iranian uh, Shah regime come to an end, if and when would apartheid South Africa come to an end. And you can see, it's almost like you have something in a slow motion, slow movement, and then suddenly, uh, nobody is really fully prepared w when it happens. And I really believe that we should uh, be taking this into account, especially, I think, the Palestinian National Movement has to take it into account because it would be required to have a structure and a consensus and a unity that it does not possess today in order to fill the vacuum that such a collapse would uh, leave uh, behind it. So it's very important to strategize and it's very difficult to strategize when you are genocided in Gaza, when you are oppressed in the West Bank, when you are discriminated against as citizens of Israel and when you are refugees dwelling in a camp. But nonetheless, you don't have any other option. And you have to be ready, because if you're not ready, uh, any, as Karl Marx taught us, any vacuum is going to be filled. And not necessarily by positive forces, and not necessarily by very dominant forces, which means it could be a perpetuated, chaotic period for a very long time. So I think this is an important discussion to have. Whether one likes the idea that the Zionist project is coming to an end, whether one dreads the idea that the Zionist project comes to an end, it doesn't matter. Uh, you have to understand that this is now the name of the game. And therefore, and with this I agree with Avi, not only the two-state solution is dead, the whole discourse of the American foreign policy sounds so anachronistic. The Biden administration is, is resuscitating and, and uh, and and uh, trying to reignite a dead process. Uh, uh, it's like trying to ignite a, a dead car without fuel and without electricity and hoping somehow that it would move. 
this is uh, uh, this shows us that the political elites, especially in the global north, that are involved in the case of Palestine, are using a vocabulary and a set of presumptions and assumptions that are totally irrelevant to the reality uh, uh, on the ground. And, and at least I, I'm, I'm optimistic about a certain different discussion in the future because the civil society or those in the civil societies in the global north which are involved in the question of Palestine definitely use a different vocabulary, definitely have a different agenda than the diplomats or the politicians who are uh, involved genuinely or cynically, doesn't matter, uh, in what the so-called uh, 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 peace process. In many ways, I don't think it could have been otherwise. And I'm saying it as someone who is fully aware that the Zionist uh, movement salvaged the lives of Jews, including of my parents. And uh, unfortunately, as Edward, the late Edward Said put it in his uh, seminal work, The Question of Palestine, uh, the salvage operation of Jews and their protection against anti-Semitism very quickly turned into what he called at the time a project of accumulation and displacement. The Zionists wanted to accumulate land, immigration, power, and displace with this, the power of that accumulation displaced the indigenous people of Palestine. And this began very early on. And very early on it was an organic essential part of the Zionist project. Now, maybe in the 16th or 17th century, such a project would have succeeded. Maybe uh, uh, in a different era, where such uh, actions of uh, displacement or even genocide were tolerated by the Western society and were not properly defeated by the indigenous people of the Americas or Australia or New Zealand, Maybe if that was the epoch, if that was the era, Zionism would have maybe thrived. But in the late 19th century and during the 20th century and definitely in the 21st century, the idea that you can somehow build a Jewish national homeland against the will of millions of people, and that despite the fact that you have expelled so many of them, so many of them are still part of the homeland, and a part of a resistance movement and you will need all the time to impose your will on them by force, by violence, by ethnic cleansing and as we have seen recently also by genocidal policies. This is not going to work. This is not, doesn't mean by the way that this is something that is going to unfold tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Unfortunately the beginning of an end can be a long historical period but we are beginning to see the indication that this is happening. And this is a very worrying moment, by the way, because as we know from the uh, reg uh, regimes such as the apartheid regime in South Africa and others, when they are under the danger of uh, disintegrating or disappearing, they become particularly ruthless and violent and fierce. And I think that what we are going to see, unfortunately, in this, in this end, I don't think I say anything new that you don't know, but I'm very, very fearful about the next year or two as far as the Israeli policies, not only towards the Palestinians in Gaza, but towards those in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, in, and inside uh, Israel. This is not going to change. 
in any dramatic way. In fact, I'm afraid this is going to be far, far worse. But I do see the maturation of the processes, which I will in a minute enumerate here, um, uh, as a kind of uh, a light in the end of the tunnel, if you want, uh, the dawn after a very dark night. So I'm not trying to uh, say that what we are seeing now is something that we all should oppose in every way possible. But I'm just saying that uh, if we, for a moment, can see beyond the, the, the now and the tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, I do think that we are seeing something dramatic changing. <laughs> to my mind, for the positive, for a better reality, for a better future, for both Jews and Arabs, but I know that a lot of people would disagree with this sentiment. But I hope at least that they would agree that these are realistic. This is a realistic analysis of the process that is going uh, uh, on. So let me talk about these uh, indications. I think I have altogether seven, but I'm sure there are more. I don't have time for that. Soon to come to cinema near you. <laughs> book about this. Um, the first uh, process is the implosion of the Israeli society from within. I think many of you are aware that before the 7th of October, Israel was undergoing a civil war, a proper civil war, not in the sense that people were shooting at each other, but it did create two societies that had very, very little in common. And they were willing to either go to demonstrations in the streets, uh, but also to totally defame and negate the other side. I don't remember uh, any time in the history of Israel where these two communities uh, felt so alien towards one another. Talking on them in terms of the enemy, the traitors, blaming each other for all that is happening. For a moment, they forgot to blame the Palestinians, which they usually do, and they blamed each other. Now, uh, I think that you can describe it as what I said in one of my articles, as the struggle between the state of Israel and the state of Judea. The state of Judea is the state of, settle of the settlers in the West Bank. At first, it looked like a marginal phenomenon in Israeli politics. But not only did it grow in numbers, about 700,000, to settlers in the West Bank now. They did not only grow in number, they became a force to reckon with inside this world. And a lot of the young Israelis lean towards the world of these Messianic Zionist Jews who are no more a marginal force. Not only is this is uh, proven by their prominent position in the government, but far more important is their prominent position in the army, in the secret service, in the civil service, they are beginning to control Israel. And the state of Israel, you can call it the state of Tel Aviv if you want, this idea that you can still have an apartheid state, but nonetheless pluralistic, that respects a lot of rights apart from the Palestinian rights, uh, that tolerates an occupation and believes or tries to convince itself that this is temporary, but all in all that they have built a society that can be part of the 
community of civilized nation, this kind of Israel that still exists and is still fighting uh, for its life is, is losing. Is losing. And, uh, and, and ironically, you would have thought that the events of the 7th of October would give it some impetus that its way of looking at reality would sound more realistic than the messianic one. But judging by all the service that we have, and that I, don't, I didn't need the service to know it, uh, the young soldiers that come back, and the reserve soldiers that are genociding the Palestinians in Gaza are far more citizens of the state of Judea than they are citizens of the state of Israel. And, uh, and the state of Judea that will take over from the state of Israel is not a viable political project. The second, uh, uh, and no less important, process is the economic one. In macroeconomic terms, Israel is doing very well. Uh, if you look at uh, the record of Israel in macroeconomic terms, that is the GDP uh, uh, and its performance during the crisis of 2008, during the crisis of, the, of COVID-19, it looks like a, a, a very viable and uh, vibrant economy. But if you look at microeconomy, uh, you can see that this is not working, really. That the gap between the have and the have-nots have never been as wide as it is now. The number of Israelis that join the, the people under the poverty line is huge, and it grows exponentially. Uh, 20% of the Israelis pay 80% of the taxes. And many of them, already before the 7th of October, began to dislocate, or relocate rather, themselves and their capital outside of Israel. They stop for a while, because they have this uh, DNA in them, which I recognize as an Israeli, when there is a war, suddenly to come back to the warm embrace of the, of the nation. But the money is again on the way out with the people. And remember, these are people from European origin, with a European passport, with professions that can easily be reignited elsewhere. The third indicator is the total failure of the army to defend its citizens. And the total failure of the government to provide basic, until this very moment, the Israeli government is unable to provide the basic necessary services for the people whose families were killed, abducted, wounded, or to the 250,000 or so people who were dislocated either from the south or from the north. The government is non-existent. The civil society there is doing its best to provide, and it does provide, but that's not a very good indicator for uh, a viable state. In fact, this is usually an indicator in the literature, at least, for a failed state. When the, when the regime or the government does not provide for the citizen and the civil society takes over, which sounds very nice and voluntary, it just means that the state is not functioning. Mm -hmm. And the Israeli state is not going to function better in the future, given the quality of its politicians and its elites. The fourth indicator is the discourse about the future, and I think that's very important. I'm not saying that the, that the, the word is mightier than the sword, or the keyboard is mightier than the sword. Uh, I, I'm, I, I do realize that not everything that is said is as important as everything that is being done. But I think discourses are important. Mm -hmm. 
And the basic discourse of the Israeli political system, and the one we will see in the next Israeli elections, is quite incredible, and I've looked for a different historical example and couldn't find it. You have, from left to right, Israeli politicians, gurus, pundits, intellectuals, talking about the future in only one way. Our vision for the future is 50 years of war, bloodshed, violence. Nobody likes us. From the north, they will always try to attack us. The Palestinians will always try to kill us. Uh, we might have a normalization agreement with Saudi Arabia, but this is not going to in any way downsize the army or our need all the time, every few years, to be involved in a bloody uh, conflict. Now, in the 21st century, for a certain younger generation, even that the one like in Israel, which is very thoroughly indoctrinated from cradle to grave, even for that generation, this vision is quite frightening and is not very promising and does not necessarily create a sense of steadfastness uh, towards the future. This is not the discourse you're going to hear from young people today in Israel because of what they call the war, but it will eventually, eventually affect a younger generation with no prospect apart from the prospect of what is happening now in Gaza. And I'm talking of Gaza from the Israeli perspective, not about what's happening to the Palestinians, but what happens to the young Israelis. The fifth uh, indicators is uh, if I do it as an algebraic kind of formula, I would say it's the move in the BDS idea from the B and D to the S. So let me explain what I mean by this. As you probably know, the BDS campaign is the boycott, divestment and sanction campaign. Uh, uh, that is an informal campaign. It's not a formal campaign. And it, uh, it's translated to different kind of actions. It doesn't have uh, 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 the same kind of impact or the same kind of nature everywhere. But the whole idea is the B and D, if you want, the boycott and divestment is that the civil society dis that is disappointed by the lack of action by the governments mm -hmm. is involved in boycotting and divesting from Israel and hoping that this is a pressure that eventually would bring a change to the, re the reality on the ground. And this hasn't happened yet. The B and D is not enough. It's very clear. But you can begin, I think, to see the move towards the S, towards the sanction. Uh, it began, and I think as much as many of us, maybe, like me, were disappointed a bit with the ruling of the ICJ on Gaza, that it did not order immediate ceasefire, but gave Israel a month to, to prove that it doesn't genocide the people in Gaza. Nonetheless, this is a landmark. This is an important landmark because in institutions such as the ICJ and the ICC are the bridge between the society and the government. And it's very possible that the young people who march in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, around the world, in the global north and in the global south for Israel, could be the politicians of tomorrow, of the future. So I, I, would, I would like to say that, that there are indicators in the way some politicians in some countries, definitely in the global south, uh, but also in the global north, are talking that we are not that far from sanctions on Israel. And uh, uh, the uh, beginning was the, the Belgium uh, uh, sanction on the uh, spare parts for the F-35. 
and China's uh, 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 refusal to continue to provide the Israelis. Another element uh, which is important for the for their missile, uh, uh, I don't want to bore you with military <coughs> technicalities, but it is more in the S department than the BMD. The sixth indicator is the change in the Jewish communities around the world, especially in the United States, especially among the younger generation of Jews. The fact that the only important lobby now for Israel in the United States, the important one, are the Christian Zionists, is a very important development. Uh, you cannot base the international legitimacy of the Jewish state just on uh, uh, the uh, uh, theological and eschatological vision of Christian Zionists who still believe that the state of Israel is the proof that Jesus Christ is coming back for 1,000 years on earth. This works definitely for some Americans, no doubt, uh, and so some people even in Britain uh, and definitely in Scandinavia, but this is not a pillar on which you can build uh, the kind of legitimacy that Israel enjoyed when Jewish communities were fully recruited as ambassadors or embassies uh, for Israel. It's, the, it's not only the question anymore. We always thought that this would happen because people would feel embarrassed about the question, especially in the United States, of the dual loyalty. It's not anymore the question of dual loyalty. It's actually a reassertion of young Jews of what they understand Judaism to be. And what they understand Judaism to be forces them to totally be against Israel and Zionism. And this is something that nobody could have predicted would happen before, but the Israelis are responsible for it themselves with the policies that they implemented on the ground. But this is an important uh, process. And the last one is what's happening on the Palestinian side. Now, it's very clear that the present generation of Palestinian politicians and activists of a certain, uh, a certain age, if you want, uh, are unable to, to unite around a, a vision, around a plan, even around a strategy. The uh, classical organizations of the liberation movement are not functioning, and partly it is because of the objective fragmentation of the Palestinians to different groups by, by, by Zionism, but also the Palestinians have an agency themselves and, and, and should criticize themselves for the lack of, of doing this, even if there are very difficult objective circumstances that explain that kind of thing. But if you look, if you remember that the Palestinian society is the youngest in the world, probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest, uh, then, and you look at the way the younger Palestinian activists and groups are coordinating between themselves and the language that they use. You can see a far more consensual Palestinian vision uh, and uh, an ability to bridge over geographical barriers. First, because of the internet, of course, which the young, older generation of Palestinians didn't have, but also because of a certain uh, 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 worldview that is shared whether you are in a refugee camp in Lebanon uh, or you are living in Detroit in the United States. And I think that although they have not yet found their organizational way of doing it, namely, do they go into the PLO and renovate the PLO? Do they build a different kind of Palestinian organization? It's very clear that the next PLO or the renewed PLO would have to include the Hamas 
and the Islamic Jihad, and uh, I know this is recorded, and I'm not violating the British designation of the Hamas and the terrorist organization. <laughs> okay, okay, no, no, don't, don't worry, we won't get Oxford into trouble. I'm just saying that the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad would have to be part of the next PLO, as a scholar, not as a terrorist. <laughs> okay, now, this would have to happen, and this is going to happen. Not for this generation, but for the next generation. Uh, people, I don't know how, <coughs> how people here understand that people not only in Palestine, in the Mashrek, in the Eastern Mediterranean, are not that worried about the rift between secular people and religious people. That from here may sound like a huge kind of clash of civilization a la Huntington. No, no. People are far more relaxed. I was a member of the Communist Party, and half of our members of the Politburo went five times to prayer uh, during uh, the meetings. And, and we got used to it. We got totally used to it. And we even had a rabbi at the Politburo of the Communist Party. We, we don't take these things, neither things, neither side, the, the religion of communism or the religion of Islam too seriously. But, but it, it's, it's part of... You know, it's part of an ecumenical framework that enables us to live together and respect each other's sensitivities and importance. And I do think that the younger generation represents this uh, in a fine, in a fine uh, way. Uh, finally, let me say this. Um, I want to repeat just one, one point which I think is really, really important here. The, if, if I'm even right about some of these processes, if not all of them, if the disintegration, the weaknesses, the weaknesses of Israel, the deficiencies are going to uh, accelerate, increase in the future, they raise or they force all, many of us to focus not only on whether we want a bi-national state or a two states, but on a certain question that now is the time to answer, to answer them, at least in the academia or among the activists, even the, if these answers are not yet translated into, you know, the, the program of the new Palestinian uh, national uh, movement or organization. For example, I'll give you one example, which is now beginning to, to emerge about the Palestinian citizens in Israel, whom we call 48 Arabs. Can they still play on both political arenas? Can they still be part of the Israeli political system and part of the Palestinian system? Uh, that's eight weeks. That's Marwan Bishara. That's eight weeks. Eight weeks. He will talk about it. He will talk about that. He will talk. Very good. So I think, I think, I just raise it as a question. I'm not going to answer it. I think they have to make a decision. This uh, bipolarism of the 48 Arabs cannot continue and will not continue and this would have a huge impact on the Palestinian national movement. Second, now is the time to say within a one-state solution what would be the fate of the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. We cannot delay this conversation because it doesn't fit too well with a one-state solution. But we have to talk about it. We have to find a way of, of doing this. What would be the collective Jewish identity. It's time to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Talking about binational state kind of mesmerizes us and does not allow us to face uh, something that we will have to face. That Zionism has failed 
to, to turn Judaism from a religion to nationalism. It doesn't work. Is there any Jewish national identity that is not Zionist? Can there be a Jewish national identity in Palestine that is not Zionist? Because if it is Zionist, then you don't have to talk about one state solution. So I think it's time to think about a Jewish collective identity in the way that we're talking about some other ethnocultural identities in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that brings me to the fact that we should start and understand that not all the models for future Palestine are in the Western supermarket of ideas. <laughs> the Mashrek, the late Ottoman period, they have political examples that can inspire us not only to undo Zionism, but to undo the colonial structure that was imposed on the Mashrek after the First World War. We need to go back and study, and too many PhD students in Middle Eastern studies do not want to learn Ottoman Turkish, but it's important to go back to the Ottoman period, to go to this live and let live structure without idealizing or romanticizing uh, uh, the regimes of the sultans, but to understand the balance between collective identities, state identities, supra-state identities, all these are not in the Westphalian Western idea of the nation-state. We need a different political structure for the Eastern Mediterranean. The, the Western one is not working. And I don't have to be a prophet about it. Just look at Syria, Iraq, and, and you understand, and Lebanon, unfortunately. Uh, and now Palestine and Israel. So all these brings me to my final sentence, and this is that, that uh, whether we uh, uh, like the idea that Israel comes to an end, or whether we dread the idea, and the gentleman who left probably does, uh, <laughs> that, no, no, I, I'm serious, I'm serious, you're back, I'm glad you're back. I've got a question later. That's very, very good, I, I'm eagerly waiting for you. Um, uh, the, um, whether we, this is the question we have to ask, because this project is not working, and uh, we all, I think, share a wish to, re if, to replace it, something that would work for as many people as possible. I believe it's possible. We are not just onlookers, but we are also contributors to a different reality. Thank you. <laughs>